is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk about variations of the squeezed life we're struggling against in the United States. First, by looking at the recent teachers and public sector strike wave in red states and the lessons and comparisons for California also facing worsening conditions with educator and union strategist Joel Jordan. And then... Alyssa Court previews her new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. It tells the stories of the downward mobility and financial instability of what she calls the middle precariat, highly educated but insecure so-called middle-class Americans who can barely afford to raise children and meet expenses. Spoiler alert, Alyssa Court ends with suggested solutions and hope. All that when we return in just a moment on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to begin today's program with Joel Jordan. We're going to be looking at the wave of teacher strikes that have taken place and enthused so many, but also to evaluate the strike wave and look at the comparisons for California and the lessons for California. And Joel Jordan is a retired LA Unified high school teacher. He's a longtime activist in the UTLA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles. He is the former UTLA director of special projects, widely known as the strategist for the union, and currently is a coordinator for the California Alliance of Community Schools, which is a consortium of nine large urban teachers unions in California that are fighting for increased public school funding and against school privatization. He's written articles on teacher union issues for Monthly Review against the current, La Voz, and a lot of other places, and he has a chapter on teacher union strategy in the recently published book, educational justice. And all of that makes him perfect to sort of begin to draw the lessons and move forward. So first, welcome, Joel. Great to be here, Susie. Thanks so much. And so let's just begin, because I know that last month, or actually just a few days ago, you were part of a a meeting in Oakland that brought several teacher uh, union locals together in the Bay Area, as well as UTLA, in a public forum on the recent Red State Teacher Rebellion that was featuring teacher leaders from three of those states. So maybe we can begin, you know, with that strike wave. That strike wave, which really encompassed now six, seven so-called red states, one of them a purple state that has had a Republican governor in Colorado. I'm going to talk mainly about full-on strikes that occurred in first in West Virginia and then in Oklahoma and then finally in Arizona. These strikes were unprecedented. Um, first of all, they were mass political strikes driven directly by the rank and file that organized itself through the social media primarily. That was one totally unprecedented unique characteristic. Secondly, these strikes were directed at the state, the legislature, the governor, not the local districts. We always think of of, um, teacher union strikes as local strikes, and that's because they always are, um, because collective bargaining is a local phenomenon, not a state phenomenon. And third, these strikes against the state, or directed at the state, also fought for taxation of corporations or against cuts in corporate taxations. 
which also made them uh, unique. They were characterized by broad alliances with parents, students, other school workers. Again, not a common phenomenon. The rank and file that organized itself through social media worked with the existing unions, but in practically all cases did not let them dominate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they drove the, the strikes. And as a result of the power that they developed, they were able to win gains. Never could have been won through legislative lobbying alone is the favorite tool of the of the labor officialdom. These direct actions resulted in large, not sufficient, not uh, what we would want completely, but huge increases in education funding, increases in salaries for educators and uh, state workers, and other gains that could not possibly have been won otherwise. So, yes, these were. this is um, pretty groundbreaking stuff that we're seeing here in these states that we would not have expected to have uh, gone this route. And I would actually add, Joel, that's all excellent, that not only were they, you know, unprecedented and groundbreaking, as you just said, but incredibly exciting, too, and really a necessary salvo for the times that we're living in and, and a lot of promise for what will come. And that's where we're going to move into the kinds of deeper critique and analysis that you have of these strikes, especially as someone who comes from, a, you know, a very long time uh, teacher union activism albeit in a different, very different setting in California. But in any case, the other thing that I was really like excited to hear you say is that these were strikes aimed at the state. You know, the kind of thing that we used to say was a political strike because it wasn't against, a, you know, a private entity, but against a state entity. In any case, so let's let's move then into the sort of nuts and bolts and, and you know, looking at that red strike wave in these poor uh, right wing, weakly unionized, right to work states. And what, you know, were the actual grievances and conditions that opened the way for these uh, spectacular strike actions? Well, in every one of these states, if you look at the, the data on salary, for instance, you can see that, that the salaries that were paid to these educators in these states were among the lowest uh, in the nation. I think West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona kind of were always in competition for who were sort of the lowest paid uh, educators in, in the country. And, and, and not only were they low paid, but to add insult to injury, um, the... The state legislatures in in these states pretty uniformly cut education spending while as part of their program of cutting taxation on the rich and on corporations. Right. So that this question of income inequality and general inequality was was raised here very specifically in in these states. And so as a result, I mean, in West Virginia, which initiated all of this, it was Talk about insult to injury. The, the West Virginia teachers were going to be forced to wear Fitbits to prove that they were taking care of themselves or else they would be fined. I got to just a- say, Joel, this is absolutely incredible because they talk about, oh, you know, these right wing states that don't like to be the nanny state, don't like to be, you know, taking care or monitoring people. And here you have this. Yeah, lack of regulation for the rich, but regulation for everyone else. Right. And so maybe just for those few who don't know, what is a Fitbit? Uh, Fitbit is a monitor that you have to wear that actually monitors your physical activity during the day to show 
that you are taking uh, preventative care uh, measures to which, you know, there is some truth to the fact that, it, you know, preventive care helps uh, to diminish hospital and medical expenses, but to then force the teachers to do this in this uh, humiliating way um, was just the last straw that actually led to that actually led to the strike in West Virginia. It wasn't over salary mainly; it was over over the the nickel and diming and and more than that the the, the increases in health benefits costs that that uh, were being borne by the educators even with their low salaries. And so, and this was a way to even reduce the health costs more by making certain that if they're unfit, they shouldn't be there because they'll be too expensive, not because they care about their state of unfittedness. Exactly. Right. right. Okay. So it led to, it was the, as you said, the straw that broke the camel's back. So now maybe we need to go into, you know, also how in these right to work states with little or no collective bargaining rights, therefore making these, you know, the most vulnerable of public sector workers, that they took these really bold and unprecedented actions. So how were the unions organized at the state level, and how were they financed? This, not the unions, but the um, but education. Okay, this gets into the whole question of state funding, um, and that's a kind of an unusual and important issue to to get into to understand what happened in these states. In Arizona, uh, Oklahoma, and in West Virginia, funding for public education is directly a product of state funding. That is, it's the state that funds uh, the educators and other school workers. And so the state is naturally the target because the, the employees, the school, the school employees, see the state because it is their direct employer, their boss. And so that had huge implications for this strike because when you strike against the state, as opposed to a local district, you are now striking against an entity that has the capability of raising revenue, which is not the case with local school districts. That's a very key point, because that means when you strike against the state, you can actually fight with a program to win more funding for what your demands are, whether they be for higher salaries, better benefits, lower class size, whatever they might be. And so... That also created the basis, because they could do that, for forming alliances. So they formed alliances with, uh, like in West Virginia, which was a, a, a great example of this. They not only formed alliances with other school workers, but they actually formed alliances with all state workers, because what they demanded was a 5% pay raise for all state employees, not just for education workers, not right. just for teachers. And they also demanded that the health benefits the health benefits program there in West Virginia, which, which is, by the way, every state employee is under, that they demanded improvements in that program for everyone, not just for them, so that there was a basis of a broad, you might want to call it a class-wide alliance, at least on the public sector side, as a basis for the strike. And, and that's very different than what happens in local districts where there is no funding mechanism for, in, you know, for meeting demands because they don't have that capability, and that what tends to happen is that the unions, often the, the teacher unions, basically not so don't get too bent out of shape when, uh, let's say, classified workers and non-educators who work for the district get cut, custodians uh, and uh, 
cafeteria workers, uh, bus drivers, and others who uh, who work as classified employees in those districts. So, so these are ways in which this is an opening up. That the, the fact that this fight was against the state, which has funding capabilities, opens up the possibility of building broader alliances, which it did in these states in many cases. And this is obviously the key. Um, but you've just talked a little bit about a little bit of the structure of the union, and here. It's, first of all, that they don't have collective bargaining, but on the other hand, they do have unions. And then on the other, as you just said, you know, they, it's no big deal to have teachers demanding pay increases for other public sector workers. And presumably that's different in states with collective bargaining. We're going to go more into that a little later, but can you just sort of explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So in a state that doesn't have collective bargaining, that means that it doesn't have local collective bargaining. And it means that it doesn't have a large bureaucracy that tends to get formed when you do have collective bargaining. So what happens in all collective bargaining states is that usually the state affiliate, Mm -hmm. um, which could be an, an affiliate of the National Education Association or the American Federation of Teachers, their state affiliates provide uh, contract negotiators and contract enforcers to locals that have a huge influence inside of the inside of those locals. So what that means is that in states like Arizona and West Virginia that don't have collective bargaining, you don't have that apparatus that can sometimes serve as a break on rank and file activity because often what these, uh, you know, affiliate bureaucracies are like is they're basically about substituting themselves for rank-and-file activity. They don't usually encourage them and often are a break on them. And so because those, the apparatus like that doesn't really exist in states like uh, Arizona and West Virginia, that sort of conservatizing influence on the rank-and-file wasn't really there. And so uh, it opened the way once the ranks got organized to, um, you know, to to move a much more aggressive mass, mass action program, which they did. Wow! And so you're talking about how the actual structure of unions in these red states was favorable in one sense, and that their grievances were enormous. And you know, we all know that many of these grievances, perhaps not the extreme of the Fitbit. But the cuts in education, the inadequate pay, too large class size, things that you're always talking about, Joel Jordan, were similar. And you've just mentioned that one of the ways that they organized in these states was by appealing to the entire community and using social networking. Is there anything else that should be added to that and how they organized that could be used elsewhere? Well, what they were able to do in all of these states was to organize um, through Facebook and other digital mechanisms a way to connect everybody together, mm-hmm. which, you know, really is, uh, there really isn't anything like that, hasn't been anything like that, you know, before now. And that, that kind of horizontal networking that occurred had huge consequences. So, for instance, in Arizona, the people who started the Facebook page used the page to identify site leaders site-based what they called liaisons at, at over 2,000 sites in Arizona, in the state of Arizona. They did not launch their strike until they knew they had at least 1,000 of these site-based liaisons, and they did that through the social media. 
that is a, a phenomenal method of organizing and one that the teacher unions and collective bargaining states haven't used for, for reasons I'll get into. Uh-huh. Um, and there was one other thing, that is the local union structures in some of these states, they're not bureaucratized in the way they are in collective bargaining states to a certain degree. They were able, in West Virginia, for instance, the social networking, the organizations or Facebook pages that came out of the social networking were able to work with the local union structures to to further the and build the strike wave there. So it, it wasn't as if there was a totally sharp delineation between the unions and the rank-and-file networking. There was a lot of cross-communication going on there, especially on the local level. Right. Okay, so now let's let's move then, because we want to kind of make a transition to California, because that's where we're talking, and bring in a sort of comparison of the conditions of these states. Because you mentioned, you know, when you were just a few moments ago, Joel Jordan, uh, talking about how the lack of collective bargaining, you know, could be seen almost as an advantage in those states. So let's talk about how the existence of legalized collective bargaining in California and elsewhere might possibly even be a barrier to teachers taking actions like they did. Is that the case? Well, to talk about that in a realistic setting, we need to first talk about what conditions are like in California compared to these other states. Okay. Because a lot has been written to say that in the blue state strongholds of teacher unionism and collective bargaining, their conditions are so different and so much better, presumably, they are, than they are in these red states. Well, as far as California is concerned, that is not the case. If you look at the data, in fact, we can see that salary differentials begin to converge uh, when cost of living is taken into account, say, between, like, West Virginia and California. In the case of California, per-pupil funding is, like, a third lower than it is even in West Virginia. That's unbelievable. Can we just stop and and repeat that again? You're saying, what, that pupil funding is lower in California? Per pupil funding in West Virginia is around 15,000 per student per year. For California, it's around 11,000. And not surprisingly, class size in California is among the highest in the country, with a much more diverse population than you have in West Virginia. And, in fact, California is ranked anywhere from 41st to 46th in the country in per-pupil funding. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a blue state, the fifth largest economy in the world, California. That's how it funds education. So when we talk about California in in comparison to these red states, we should not draw a favorable comparison to California with, with the other states. On the contrary, in, a, in, a, in some cases, conditions are much worse. So let's, so, yeah, let's go yeah. into that. So you, why are they worse, not just in terms of the funding, but, you know, what other aspects? Well, let's get into the, you asked the question about how collective bargaining uh, right. might have influenced this. Because we would, you know, the conventional wisdom is that collective bargaining is a strengthening mechanism for workers, and it is. Mm-hmm. We would not want to go back to no collective bargaining in California as opposed to collective bargaining. However, collective bargaining has certain consequences that need to be taken into account if we're going to be able to build the kind of power that was built in the red states through their actions. So I want to get into, you know, one of them is I mentioned before that these workers, and educators especially, saw the state as their immediate employer, which they were. Well, is that the case in California? 
Well, actually, yes, although California funds its local districts 90%, meaning that local districts get 90% of their funding from the state, mm-hmm. 10% or so from the federal government. Wait one second, Joel, just because there's yeah. – what role do property taxes pay? Because I know it used to be that that was one of the reasons that funding in different districts was so unequal, but then there was a measure to equalize it. So could you just perhaps – Years ago, there was a court case called Serrano Priest, which equalized, to a certain extent, it it, it had a very beneficial effect, not completely, but it it roughly equalized the funding of local school districts in California. And as far as property taxes are concerned, they are no longer collected locally. They go directly to the state and are distributed along with the other tax collections. They then are put into the general fund and then are distributed according to the the, the formulas that govern uh, state funding in California. Okay, so let's go back now to these uh, to the way that the unions are organized and the sort of funding basis in California. Funding basis is so the one thing is, the one thing that's really important to understand is that since the funding of salary, class size, you, all the issues that require funding in a local district, most of the money, 90% of the money for that comes from the state. But it comes indirectly, not directly. It goes to the districts, and then local unions negotiate with the districts over the distribution of that money. And that is an important difference because now, instead of looking at the state as the boss, as the employer, now, teachers and other school workers look at the local districts as their boss. The only problem with these local districts is that these bosses don't have any uh, fundraising capability. They have to take the money that they get uh, from the state. And in a sense, what the local unions are doing is negotiating over the crumbs that they get from the state. Mm-hmm. And what that does is, whereas the consciousness of teachers in states like West Virginia is state consciousness, that it's they have to go after the state to get what they need of teachers and other school workers in California and all other collective bargaining states tends to be local, mm-hmm. parochial. It's just their boss is, their first boss is the district, and then the state is kind of this distant entity. So that is one very important limiting factor in the way in which teachers have been organized to try to fight for better conditions. That is, they're limited by, the, by this fact that because the, their bargaining is with the local districts and not with the state. Got it. Okay. Let's go into the other aspects that talks about the difficulties here in California, the disadvantages that go along with the kind of organization that we find here. And I think you've mentioned in your Lavos uh, brilliant interview, uh, bureaucracy and parochial consciousness. Yes. So the other side of this is, you know, I mentioned it before to a degree, you know, sort of by way of negation with the the red states not having strong union bureaucracies. But in California and in other collective bargaining states, basically you have very large state bureaucracies that they that essentially take care of collective bargaining on the local level. And they generally don't like very much, you know, rank and file action. In fact, the kind of work that they do is usually performed, you know, without the active participation and control of the union membership. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the apparatus kind of views this activity as a substitute for member activity. 
which they pretty much discourage because what they want are peaceful, non-confrontational compromises with the school district. That's usually what they aim toward. And, and that's the material foundation for what we could call service unionism. What is service unionism? It's the idea that the union leadership and staff do things for the members rather than supporting and encouraging union members to actually drive the union's agenda themselves. So in a recent interview during the West Virginia strike, and it was about the um, Janus decision about agency fees, yeah. the president of uh, the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Wagengard, actually was quoted as saying that, that collective bargaining should be seen as an alternative to strikes and other uh-huh. forms of confrontation with the employer. And, and the amazing thing about it is she said it during the second to the last day of the West Virginia strike. Uh, Even while that was going on, amazing. she was basically calling for collective bargaining, not as a, as a means to organize member activity and mass activity up to and including strikes, but rather as an alternative. So, you know, we saw this kind of service unionism in the red states, but... The difference, as we said, was that these unions were didn't have this apparatus, didn't have this bureaucracy, because they didn't have collective bargaining there. And they and, go together, don't they, Joel? I mean, the sort of the bureaucracy that actually, you know, look has the union as their standard of living, in a sense, and that they're performing a service for the people under them rather than what we saw. And what you started to describe about what was so exciting about the red state strikes is that and you called it a mass strike and political and it came from the ground up and it was not you know in service of anybody other than themselves you could say well it was certainly in service of themselves but they quickly recognized that in order to be effective they needed to broaden their demands to be in service of their students the commu- right. you know the yeah. improving classroom conditions as well as the conditions of other of, of workers other than themselves, yeah. But this does get back, Joel, to this whole sort of very important difference between, you know, a state where you do have, like California, where you have not only, you know, collective bargaining, but you have the, the bureaucracy and the parochialism that you've described. So how do people in states like California begin to overcome that or fight against that and achieve, you know, and also do what was really important about this, bring back the strike and not have this notion? that is an alternative to the strike? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's, a, it's not an easy answer because there are, in a way, there are more sort of obstacles to overcome in a state like California than there, than there were there in certain ways. In other mm-hmm. ways, they had obviously their own obstacles, you know, these virulently anti-labor and anti-teacher politicians that were running the legislature. In California, we have kind of another obstacle, which is, you know, a blue state where everybody pays lip service to, you know, supporting public education and so forth, but then, in fact, don't really do that, as I brought out before. So what are some of the things that are being done and need to be done? Well, first, I would say that, as was done in the red states, there needs to be much more networking between rank-and-file activists from different locals to help each other build militant social justice locals where they are and to help each other do that. Now, we've begun to do that in California through the uh, United Caucuses of Rank and File Educators Network. It's a national network of social justice educators who are building caucuses and and other kinds of struggles in their local communities, mm-hmm. and we are working on linking them together. And they may, you know, may, might consider in the future setting up a, a Facebook page that could, uh, you know, help to generate some of the energy 
the kind of energy that we saw in the red states. Secondly, there's the potential of taking local contract fights where, you know, this is, this is how you can sort of one of the ways you may be able to break down parochialism, and that is to, to link local contract demands to state funding mm-hmm. so that you say, okay, we can win this much, and we're going to cut the bureaucracy in these districts. Some of these urban districts have very top-down bureaucracies. They spend way too much money on top administrators and not enough on the classroom, that we need to continue raising those demands, but also raise demands for lower class size and other kind of expensive items that may only be able to be funded through the state. But that should be local contracts could begin to raise that so that now teachers and other other educators can begin to see their demands as not just uh, limited by the local funding that's available, but they be, be about more than that. A third effort that's going on is to try to link contract campaigns and build solidarity throughout the state. So, for instance, UTLA is building potentially toward strike readiness and a possible strike in the fall. That's a possibility. And the same is true of the Open Education Association, maybe in the fall, in the fall and winter. And so there's, there's a chance for sort of building up the energy through support for these struggles as they develop. A, a fourth way to go is, I mean, we have to understand that the main demand of these red state strikes was for increased education funding to be able to pay for right. what they, they were demanding. Uh, so right now circulating throughout California is the Schools and community first, Communities First Act, which is uh, gathering signatures to get on the ballot in 2020. That could raise as much as $11 billion for education and other uh, social services in California, which would be an enormously important thing to get behind. In Arizona, that, as a result of their strike, they are, in fact, circulating a similar kind of petition to get on the ballot soon. And then finally, I would say that all this leads to the idea of building for some kind of coordinated action along the lines of what we saw in some of these states, like a two-, three-day walkout over a piece of legislation or over support for a um, progressive tax initiative like the Schools and Community First Act, something like that which helps to build the power and change the conversation in the state toward the need to have increased education and funding, as well as funding for for other important needs within California. Those are what I would say you know, at least for starters, are the things that need to be worked on so that we can maybe get to the point where we can create the power that's needed in California to move things around, education funding in particular. Well, I like this very much. And I just, you know, we're almost out of time, but I really wanted to just hear, because it sounds to me like what you've just come up with is a formula to sort of overcome the bureaucracy, parochialism, and really the divides that exist even in terms of funding and other things in a state like California and make it, I guess, more favorable like it was in red states, but with the added protection that the unions actually are uh, collective bargaining and strike is not illegal. Is that, you know, sort of what I'm hearing you say? And, and I guess this is just the sort of final thing. Do you think we can build on those successes? And I say this because a lot of people took the lesson from the red state strikes that labor law is nothing but, you know, a way of tying uh, workers and their representatives' hands behind their back and that freeing them from labor law like Janice will do will somehow make it easier to, to have these mass strikes. Just to review a little bit, we can see that while the red state 
teachers, educators won a great deal. They didn't win their demands overall, and they're facing a situation where they kind of like trying to think about what's next, right? And and then particularly politically, since if you have a, the state as your as your target, then who's making the decisions in the state, and how do you influence that? Right. So clearly, a strike. I think we had to conceptualize this: is that a strikes are absolutely essential, but they're not sufficient. And what's needed, in addition, not as a substitute, but as a, in addition, and in coordination with direct action, is a political program, an organized political program that really speaks to the needs of the people in the state. And so I worry that, you know, one of the directions of the red state struggle is to remember in November, let's, let's take out those politicians that were against us and put in teachers, you know, as uh, Democrats or Republicans. And I'm, I worry that that will dissipate and, and essentially co-opt a lot of the energy that was created there. Rather than creating out of those strikes a political movement and organization that goes even beyond public education that can begin even more strongly raising the need for corporate taxation and taxing the rich and for, for providing the needs of people across the board, education, transportation, health care, and so forth. Well, that we- is what I think is the direction that we need to go in, and that, of course, means that would go against the preferred strategy of labor officials, which rely on the Democratic Party, and, by the way, now in some of the red states in the Republican, to the Republican parties, because they're that pragmatic in the way that they approach political action. Joe, we've run completely out of time, but this was just terrific and really the kind of, uh, you know, just exactly what we need to hear from. And I want to invite you back when and if that strike wave starts here. But I want to thank you for joining us today. Joel Jordan is a retired LAUSD high school teacher, longtime activist in UTLA, and was their director of special projects. He's currently a coordinator for the California Alliance of Community Schools, and that's nine large urban teachers unions in California, five for increased public school funding and against privatization. And you can find his articles, well, his interview in Lavos, his articles in Monthly Review and Against the Current, and his chapter in the recently published book, Educational Justice. Joel Jordan, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Great to be here, Susie. Thanks a lot. Thanks. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Really pleased to have Alyssa Court with us. And she's just got a brand new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And that book is published by Echo. Echo HarperCollins. Echo HarperCollins, thanks. Uh, Alyssa Court is the executive editor of the journalism nonprofit Economic Hardship Reporting Project. She does that with Barbara Ehrenreich. And She's also the author of four previous books, Branded, Republic of Outsiders, Hothouse Kids, and the poetry book Monetized. And this book, though, it speaks so much to the condition that so many of us are in. And as you read it, and I have to say it's a page turner, you won't want to not read it. Alyssa also writes the bi-monthly outclassed column for The Guardian. She writes for all the major news outlets, and she's been nominated for prizes, including an Emmy and a National Magazine Award. Now, Alyssa, before we begin, because your book is coming out this week, CNN Money came out with the report this week that said almost half of all United States families can't afford 
basics like rent and food. But funnily, the way that they stated it is that they can't afford a middle class lifestyle, which, you know, usually when you think of being able to afford rent, food, and perhaps some minimal clothes and utilities and maybe, uh, you know, childcare and all the rest of it, that that would not be how we would define middle-class life. But they said that 51 million households don't earn enough to afford a monthly budget that includes all of those things, including health care and transportation and perhaps a cell phone. And that report was released by United Way Alice Project. I'm sure uh, that means 43% of the households in the United States. And that sort of tallies, doesn't it, with, with what you found and, and the reasons that you wrote this book? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when people will say things when I'm watching, you know, news or reading the paper and, you know, the economy's reviving, uh, you know, jobs are um, on the rise, I think to myself, well, yeah, sort of, but look at, let's look at it long term and let's look at what jobs they're working, how many jobs, and let's look at what their take-home pay is, you know? I mean, sure, they're, they're, people are working more, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting the quality of life that we even had in the 1990s. Right. And in fact, even that, that statistic about the shortage of labor and unemployment's down to now under 4% is dubious for some of the reasons that you said and a lot more. So, And really, those statistics don't talk about the quality of life that most people are leading. And I think that's really where where we have to go and what you've done so well with this book. And I should say that you have uh, really good blurbs on the back from all kinds of uh, important people who talk about just how important this book is. And others have compared it to a sort of middle class uh, version of what Barbara Ehrenreich did in Nickel and Dimed. I hope that this book will be that successful. But I was very interested as well that you gave it a name. And that was the middle precariat. <laughs> so maybe we should just look at that. Let's you start looking at uh, the squeezed group that's the middle class, and you go through and you have lots of examples. But maybe you could just sort of define that squeezed middle group. What makes them the middle precariat? Well, the fact is that middle class life is now thirty percent more expensive than it was twenty years ago. And in some cases, the cost of daily life over the last 20 years has doubled. Meanwhile, middle-class household incomes have barely budged in the last 20 years, while the cost of health care and public college has nearly doubled. So basically, our expenses, especially in certain cities of real estate, rentals, mortgages, the cost of keeping ourselves baseline well and educating our kids, even at public colleges, these aren't, you know, fancy private schools, has gone up astronomically and our wages have not. So what we're seeing is we're seeing, and what I, what I did in Squeeze, I went out and sort of waded into the mosh pit of <laughs> the middle class and I was encountering professors, school teachers, lawyers, accountants, librarians, who were really trying to make sense of this. And get by every day. And, and when I say middle precariat, so we think of the precariat as something that's like a precarious proletariat, like a precarious working class. But what I'm arguing in this book and what I saw when I spoke to, I don't know, a hundred parents was a precarious middle class. Right. 
Yeah, and also, I mean, we call it the precariat. This came really, I think, out of Occupy, too. Mm -hmm, Um, But also, you know, and we're calling it the gregariat now, too, because they're um, precarious, but they're working gig to gig. And you actually go into this when you, and you you spend a lot of time in your book talking about the lives of those who are highly educated, have more than some college, but still can't really make it. But yet, now, as uh, young parents have to find money for childcare, and you actually go over to what happens for those who are providing those services as well. So I guess what we should do a little bit, and you just mentioned even lawyers are there. So who are, you know, you mentioned there's the professors, there's childcare. Who else is in this middle precariat? Nurses, like a really wide range. And it, it, going, even some things that surprised me, I spoke to people who were working out in Silicon Valley, and we assume, oh, if you're in the tech sector, you're, you know, whatever, uh, edging into the 1% and you're, you know, destroying San Francisco. But no, many of these people work in HR, human resources for tech companies, or public relations, or even like lower level coding and they're squeezed too because they can't afford to rent apartments or homes or certainly own homes near their jobs. So they're commuting long distances. What might be a middle-class salary somewhere else is just not cutting it. So that was, that was interesting to me too. And I think, you know, when I was reading that chapter, Alyssa Court, I, I was thinking, yes, I mean, this is the perfect example of how poverty is relative <laughs> because even yeah. when you earn more, but as the expenses go up, you still have trouble making ends meet, even though it's not the same as what we're seeing as an explosion of homelessness in our streets. But this is a higher level who are still very precarious. And one thing that, you know, you suggest in the book is that if white middle class life is precarious, what about for families of color, even in this grouping and then below those with, you know, a lot of education? Yeah, I mean, for I'm thinking of a woman who was a oh, former journalist. I mean, that's part of how I got into this book because uh, my husband and I were, free, were freelance writers, and I saw a lot of our friends and, to a much smaller extent, ourselves shaken by you know the contraction of journalism as a profession. And one of those journalists was this woman named Courtney, who now lives, I think, in Lancaster, California, but had have to move further and further away from you know, her network, her social network, because she couldn't afford rent. She was downsized. I mean, she chose to leave her reporting job, but just because she knew she was going to be laid off, she says. And now she was being retrained as a paralegal in her late 40s. She'd gone to Northwestern, and she was African-American and definitely saw some relationship there. Her friends who had been reporters said, oh, why don't you just get a public relations job? Why don't you just do communications? And she said, you know, oh, it's easy when you're young and you know, young white lady, <laughs> this was a quote, and but like, it, this isn't the case for me. And so she became a paralegal and she got another job, but at a cost. I mean, she had to move really far away. She was in debt. She had to take in a roommate who was living with her children and her. So, you know, it was complicated for someone who's middle-aged. Right. And you go in, Alyssa Court, and I should just tell the listeners that we're talking about squeezed, why our families can't afford America by Alyssa Court. And it's really, as Barbara Ehrenreich says, a scorching account of the American family today, and so it is. And we're talking about not just the general squeeze, but I think overall the downward mobility of those who have higher expectations because they did everything right and got the college degrees or at least went to college. And even there have, as you just said, as journalists have to work one or two or three jobs. In the very first chapter, you talk about, well, when motherhood 
enters the equation and you have to take into account all the added expenses, there's guilt as well. And, and how many people told you time to get a, quote, real job? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of guilt. And for, I mean, even among the people who have a, quote, unquote, real job, there's <laughs> guilt and contraction. And like I'm thinking about the woman in um, the first chapter of my book who was a lawyer who had been discriminated against when she was pregnant and had to leave her job. And this was, I saw this as part of a constellation also where we have so little maternity leave in this country and very, like, no pregnancy leave. Something like, it's like 14% of jobs uh, have paid um, maternity leave. And that is part of the problem. A lawyer like her, she was afraid to come out as pregnant, and then she did, and then she felt she was discriminated against. And now she actually represents a lot of other women who are similarly discriminated against. And that, to me, is just one piece of this whole complex. So it's around class and precarious labor, but then it's also around women, female bodies, birth, and the kind of contempt that this country has for caregiving. Well, that I want to go into because even in the first chapter, Lizzie, it's called Inconceivable. And I think one of the issues, you open up from the very beginning this issue of care, and that's, you know, really, I think, the core issue. We live in a society with very little social support. So you described, and you just mentioned it, too, you know, the various arrangements people have to come up with on their own to deal with the lack of state support, like co-parenting and, I guess, co-housing. And now, for example, in Los Angeles, the city, the county has just passed a law that changes zoning requirements so people can actually rent out their garages and fix them up so that they can have granny apartments that used to not be allowed. But given the crisis of housing and homelessness and, you know, precariousness, that's just one other thing that's happening. But we're living in a time now under the Trump administration where the meager social supports are getting a lot worse. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how different it is and how it affects this layer that you're writing about. Like you talk about that there's no social support, so they have to come up with their own solutions. I was surprised by the number of DIY solutions people had come up with, Uh you yourself, like co-housing, co-parenting, not in romantic relationships, but just living together as friends or acquaintances that shared parenting and cooking duties for a group of children, or um, bartering and trading, um, you know, all care for your kids and you can, you know, uh, fix my plumbing kind of thing. Um, And that that was happening on a small scale all over the place. But that's, to me, sort of a a sad state of things that we're thrown back on ourselves all the time. And that's the best we can hope for. And when I went on a just on a trip to Montreal one time, I met these two academics in their 20s, and they had two children. They seemed so relaxed. I thought to myself, why is this possible? (laughs) And then I found out that the province of Quebec offers universal government-subsidized daycare for children for and under at the cost of $7 to $20 per day. (sighs) And this was in such a stark contrast to the people who I'd been talking to who had to either spend 30% of their earnings or, or more on daycare and then summer camps and after school, or they were doing these incredibly elaborate kind of 
barter trade <laughs> co-parenting schemes. Like that was, you know, it was one or the other, or they were, or they were going deeply, deeply into debt. Right, and it's not just Canada. All of you know, Western Europe, even and Chile and other countries all around the globe, you know, provide so much more social support than we do. And I remember when we, you know, more or less celebrated the FMLA, the Family Leave Act, but it was twelve weeks unpaid leave for those who can afford it because nobody could afford it. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who can afford unpaid leave for twelve weeks? So okay, so we should move into uh, Lisa Court because you don't just write about these conditions, but you actually propose solutions and you talk about this shift to a caring society. So, and I just wanted to say too because a, a lot of what you write about it seems to be like adjunct professors and you know who earn very little but are highly educated, often in debt. They don't get benefits. And I know even in my own school, we set up a food bank for students who were indebted, and a lot of adjuncts were then asking if they too could, you know, make use of the food bank. And that sort of says it, doesn't it? So let's move into some of the solutions that you think could be enacted that would actually change the way that we live and work. Some of these solutions, as I said, are things like, you know, the, the homespun ones. But, you know, the bigger ones are the ones that we really, we really need desperately, and they include just like a 21st century safety net for parents and families. Um, that, that means better maternity and paternity leave. That means uh, universal pre-K and 3K like we have in New York City, which is one of the successful uh, things that I write about. I talked to one of the creators of it who was telling me how the burden that was alleviated for some of the parents by this universal pre-K in New York City was not just financial, it was psychological. Mm -hmm. They had been relying on informal daycare networks, cousins and neighbors that weren't always safe. And now they felt that they could, you know, they were sending their kids to a, you know, city-sanctioned school where they're going to learn the ABCs. And then there are bigger solutions like universal basic income that everybody's talking about right now and is being piloted in Toronto, outside of Toronto and Stockton, California. And that's a little more pie in the sky, but, and I know people like Chris Hughes are rabbiting on about it, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking about it in terms of care work and from a feminist caregiving perspective, if we think so much uh, is estimated, roughly 4.3% of the U.S. GDP is care work. It's unpaid care work. Um, What if those women, mostly, let's just be frank about it, women, were receiving, you know, a UBI, universal basic income for that work. Like an individual could receive twelve or thirteen thousand a year, and a family could receive twenty thousand. And that's the kind of money that would offset characters in my book, like a adjunct who was making twenty something thousand a year, teaching many classes, and couldn't afford ice cream for his daughter. You know. What do you suggest, though, because given the society we live in, or will it require a revolution, to actually change the way we look at the caring professions? Because right now they're poverty professions. I think you say that there's the Grinch in power, but public sentiment actually is against the insecurity of the work hours, the work, the algorithm, all the things that you describe in your book. So how do we get that one done so that we can reframe the way care is thought of? I have a few things here. Like One is for what we can do ourselves as parents. And again, I hate to throw this back onto us, but this is, this is one thing we can do. We can talk about the feeling of stigma and self-blame that we have when our many gig jobs don't add up or our so-called middle-class work is not paying off and doesn't have the professional arc we thought. We can, we can talk openly about it. We can 
talk to our children about social class in an honest and but way that that has some pride to it, but is also admitting to you know gaps that we might be experiencing and what it means in this country. We can talk to our friends and colleagues, and we really try to deal with the shame and stigma that have now accrued to anything that might feel like so-called failure in this country. So that's one thing we can do. And then the other thing we can do is we can start voting, (laughs) voting differently, you know, banding together, voting for people who are supporting these family-friendly policies. And don't let, like, all these fractures that have plagued, you know, the the left uh, and, like, progressive Democrats, like, get in the way of pushing through some of these things, especially on a local level. And we've run out of time, but there's so much more in this book. I urge you to go out and get it. It's squeezed. Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Alyssa Cord has uh, written it, and it's a terrific read. It's published by Echo. It's an imprint of HarperCollins. Alyssa is the executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and she is also the author of four other books. This is the book that we're talking about today and the one that you should run out and get squeezed. Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us this preview. Oh, thank you, Susie. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. And thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.